You're listening to the Sydney Ideas Podcast. I'm Anna Burns, the Public Programs Manager. Since COVID-19 first emerged in December last year, there's been a lot of uncertainty, anxiety and misinformation. We've seen international cities in lockdown, jumpy stock markets, and as of Thursday the 12th of March, the World Health Organization has officially declared a pandemic. The situation is, of course, rapidly developing, but it's useful to get some perspective. What can we do to prepare and respond to this issue? On the 11th of March, we hosted an information session with academic experts from the University of Sydney to answer critical questions that are front of mind for everyone right now. Our panel of experts included Associate Professor Adam Cameron-Scott, who specialises in global health security and international relations, Professor Julie Leesk, who has qualifications in nursing and midwifery. Her research focuses on risk communication. Ramon Shaban, Professor of Infection Prevention and Disease Control. He's an internationally respected clinician, educator and researcher in infection prevention and control and emergency care. His expertise is at the nexus of these areas. Also here is Professor Tanya Sorrell, Director of the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity and Chair of the NHMRC's Research Translation Faculty Steering Group on New and Emerging Health Threats. The best place to start is with the facts and data. Here's Ramon with a brief timeline of how the outbreak has evolved. Folks, this is a brand new infection in general terms. We know that it first emerged or was first identified at the end of December of last year with a cluster of cases in Wuhan city in Hubei province in China. Um, very early on in January of this year, the, um, the novel virus was identified laboratory-wise and over a number of recent weeks um, and months now, the number of cases has emerged and grown rapidly around the world. To date, there are approximately 118,000 cases, confirmed cases of coronavirus disease around the world. Some 4,780 or so deaths of those confirmed cases. Here in Australia, there are 112 confirmed cases across the country, um, of which the majority of those are here in New South Wales. There are 60 or so cases here in New South Wales, 15 in Victoria, 15 uh, in Queensland, mm -hmm and a small, smaller number in the other states and territories more broadly. And Tanya, this is a rapidly changing issue. Like, what are the, the facts about COVID-19 more broadly as they currently are right now? So you would like to know a little bit about the clinical symptoms? Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, it's quite indistinguishable from the flu. And those of you who have had the flu will know exactly what the symptoms are. Uh, there may be a fever, more than 90% of patients will have a fever, but that means that 10% don't. There may be a runny nose and sniffles, typically with either a sore throat or a cough, and you may uh, present with some shortness of breath. A smaller proportion of patients may have diarrhea or nausea and vomiting or muscle aches and pains or a headache. So very typical flu-like symptoms. This is perhaps a question for all of you, but for Tanya and Ramon uh, in particular, like how risky is this? What does it actually mean for us? Did you want to start from one? So certainly. So we're treating this as, um, to be frank, uh, a respiratory-based pathogen. It, as you've heard Tanya outline, it behaves in many ways as a respiratory-based pathogen. And it's transmissible by two main routes. First of those is contact, and the other one is droplet. And contact is, as the word implies, by touching a surface or another object which has the virus um, on it. 
So if I was to have coronavirus disease, for example, and I was to sneeze and cough and cover my hand and then I shook Julie's hand and she rubbed her face with her hand, <laughs> then she would be at risk of that kind of infection. That's the contact transmission. The other way is droplet. And so equally, if I was to sneeze um, here, uh, because uh, uh, Julian and Adam are to my right and left and they're within about a metre apart from us, um, if I was to sneeze rather loudly perhaps, um, I generate water droplets in the air and those water droplets contain viable virus and if they were to breathe those droplets into their lungs, then they are at risk of that particular infection. The third way that sometimes infections spread is by the air. Now, this is not an airborne-based infection. Some diseases such as measles are spread via the air, and these can travel long distances to the back of the room, for example, uh, and pose others at risk. But we don't believe that this virus behaves in that kind of way. So it's contact and droplet. Can I just add there that in terms of how risky is this for me, if you look at the data from China among many thousands of cases, uh, you, they've, the, 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 the experts have been able to um, infer that um, the risk of one person passing COVID-19 onto another one, um, for every one person who's infected, they will affect about two people and it may be more or maybe less, but these are the sort of uh, rough estimates you deal with when you're dealing with levels of uncertainty and you're still building your knowledge. Um, and then 80%, about 80% of the people, according to a study from the China CDC, had mild disease. Um, so they were diagnosed with it and they had a mild course of illness. And a further 20% had a more severe illness and uh, the estimates on the death rates from the cases that are identified range around about two, but um, Tanya and, and Ramon could probably um, give more clarity on that. So that's just how risky it is for us and if we get it. And, and I think one helpful thing that Tanya has done is to say what it could be like if we get sustained transmission here um, and in comparing it to uh, things like influenza and influenza seasons. We'll come back to all that with a bit more detail, but I'd like to um, go to the international perspective because you've raised China and that's, it's come from an international um, outbreak. Uh, Adam, can you give us some, without getting too stuck in comparing every country to Australia, where's, like, what's happening internationally and how does that kind of relate to what, what our experience in Australia may be? Sure. So um, the outbreak, as everyone's aware, and as Ramon mentioned, started in China. It was first identified there. Um, for probably around the first six weeks of the outbreak, uh, it's been 99% of the world's cases were in China. Um, in the last two weeks, we've seen that change with um, more and more cases arising in uh, three other countries of concern, which is South Korea, um, which has been linked to a religious group. So they had a large number of people that attended a funeral. And so they ended up with a very large cluster of cases immediately, which then started to spread further in the community. Um, we've also heard of Iran. Um, and as you've probably all seen the media image of the Iran health minister on national television going joking about whether or not he had 
COVID. The problem there is that we don't really know how widespread the virus is, and that's why Iran has been of concern. Um, and then obviously Italy. Um, and what we've seen in Italy is a number of cases uh, which can't be traced having a travel history to China. Um, so that's the same with Australia. The majority of our cases were originally imported cases. Um, we've now seen a few isolated incidences of people that have ended up um, getting exposed through close contact. Um, and we've got a couple of clusters or, or groups of people that can be traced to that um, sort of close contact, but most of it has all come from overseas. We don't really have the evidence of widespread or sustained community transmission, which is a good thing. And, and in fact, as of yesterday, and things do get updated daily, there's only one instance of uh, unknown source of infection in the community. It is in Sydney and it involves only a couple of people. So I think we can be reassured at the moment, as someone was asked the other day by Norman Swan, this disease is not rampant in our community at the present time. Mm -hmm. And before we get into what's happening here in Sydney and, and New South Wales in particular, well, New South Wales and Sydney in particular, um, Adam, can you just expand a little bit on the, the differences internationally, like when we're trying to find, it's, it's dangerous to extrapolate from other um, examples, but some of the differences in, in Australia in terms of how we live, how we get around, our proximity to each other, a bit of context there for, for our situations that may vary to others. Sure. So, I mean, obviously, in some of the cities in China, and particularly Wuhan, that's a population of 11 million people. Um, a lot of people live in very high-density living arrangements, and so those types of environments can help facilitate the spread of disease. Um, the fact that places like Sydney, you know, we do have widespread spaces. Um, most people live in individual houses as opposed to sort of high-rise apartments is a good thing. But obviously, we still need to be really careful, and that's why the government has really been emphasising the need for us to regularly wash our hands, um, engage in cough and sneeze etiquette, so coughing into your elbow as opposed to your hand, um, as well as avoiding people that are visibly unwell. Um, so, yeah. And are there any other lessons um, that we can learn from how this is um, unfolded and being dealt with internationally that, you know, that we might be taking, that we can take lessons from here in Australia? Well, I guess it's important to appreciate that the outbreak in every country that we've seen has unfolded very differently. And so we're still kind of, it's unclear how it will unfold in Australia if it does start to spread more widely. What we're probably anticipating is... Um, undetected cases of people with a travel history which might then start to sort of spread in a small cluster um, and the aim of the healthcare system at the moment is to try and identify those people and try and um, isolate them and prevent them from spreading it further but like I mentioned with South Korea it was all their outbreak has been traced to a religious group um, in China obviously the one of the challenges is that we don't know really where the virus has emerged from um, there have been conspiracy theories circulating that it came from a bio lab and this sort of thing. There's no evidence to support that. Um, and what we've seen in the past is that it's usually, coronaviruses have usually emerged from bats and then gone into an intermediary host. Um, and the problem or the concern at the moment is that we haven't been able to identify the intermediary host with this current outbreak. So there's a focus on trying to identify that there. Um, but the outbreaks in Italy, again, very sort of different sort of environments. So there's no guarantee, this is not inevitable, that it's going to um, spread widely throughout Australia. 
um, and certainly our public health community is very focused on identifying cases and trying to stop that spread and slow it down. So a couple of um, questions that have come through on Slido about transmission and, and contracting the disease is um, from the first point of contracting the virus yourself, how many days is it before you're contagious and can pass it on to others? Like that level of contagion, what is the... What are the premise around this? So you're asking about something called the incubation period. Mm -hmm. And it seems from data, again, largely from China, that the uh, average incubation period is between five and seven days. Uh, you'll be aware that 14 days has been designated by the authorities as the potential incubation period. Uh, the longest period I'm aware of of a particular case is around 10 days. But in predicting that, there's an element of caution, uh, which has been taken by the authorities to designate the 14 days. You may have heard the Chief Medical Officer of the Commonwealth uh, indicate yesterday that there is discussion underway about whether that uh, 14 days needs to be upheld, uh, and that's ongoing at the moment. Um, but the reason around it is because by far and away, the vast majority of patients have a shorter incubation period. Right. And within that um, sort of period of, of being contagious, like how does that? Oh, how long, you, when do you become contagious? And how long are you contagious for? Yeah. yeah. So people have been quite concerned about the possibility of spread when patients do not feel sick mm -hmm. or asymptomatic spread. It is true that a significant number of patients seem to have quite mild symptoms. Uh, and it is also true that there are instances of spread which seem to be in the sort of immediately pre-symptomatic period. So, yes, you could call it asymptomatic spread. But it's also true that in this epidemic, as with every other epidemic, by far and away the majority of spread occurs from symptomatic patients. If you're asking about when someone's been ill, how long they're likely to remain infectious for others, we don't have a clear answer at this point in time. We do have, and that's because we don't understand the, uh, the disease as well as we might, and it's likely to be potentially different between countries. Uh, but we are making sure that before patients are called cleared of infection, that they do have to have two negative tests where we look at the genetic content of the virus. They're called PCR tests before we're happy to release them uh, from isolation. And at Westmead, we're also doing some additional tests, including culturing the virus, because uh, culturing the live virus is obviously the best way of determining if someone's potentially infectious. But there, is, there are certainly national studies about to get underway to also correlate those lab tests with actual infectiousness in the community. And to do that, we've had to develop what's called a serology test or a test where you measure antibodies in response to the virus. And that's uh, happening or has happened as we speak. And so where does testing fit into all of this in terms of um, testing? Where does that fit into the incubation and the, and the symptom sort of timeline? So the test would normally become positive uh, really just in the pre-symptomatic period, just before symptoms develop, recognising that some patients don't realise they have symptoms. So it's a bit of a, a grey dividing line between asymptomatic and symptomatic. That's when the test is likely to become positive. Uh, it may, of course, when patients present with symptoms, it's potentially more likely to be positive because they're likely to have a higher viral load. 
And, and just to add to that, so the indication for a test is based on a set of criteria and it combines both what we call an epidemiology uh, criteria set and also clinical set. So you have to have traveled to an area where the infection is endemic or contact with somebody who has confirmed COVID disease plus a set of clinical symptoms, such as Tanya has outlined, for a clinician to think this is perhaps COVID-19, as opposed to, you know, I've got a sniffle, do I have COVID? So um, it's really important to, um, for us to temper our, some of our anxieties about any relative symptom we may have versus whether or not this is actually COVID-19 and would that then warrant a test more broadly. We don't want everyone to think that they would need to have a test all at once because A, that's not, not indicated and B, it would be an enormous drain on resources which are obviously finite at this point in time. Now, I did receive a phone call just before coming here to say that today at one o'clock, it's been uh, determined that anyone returning from overseas um, should actually, if they develop symptoms, uh, contact the health system uh, for assessment and probably testing. But that's a very, it just shows how rapidly how things are evolving. Which is the epidemiology part of that process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I want to ask a few more questions about at risk and also prevention. Um, there's a couple of questions coming through on Slido about uh, risks via public transport or, you know, can you get COVID if you go in a swimming pool? Like in terms of like how do we... Um, how you know how at risk are when we're doing these things that are in our everyday life and prevention? Um... So I might begin with that. So if we think about the mode of transmission where we talked about contact and droplet, uh, we then would think about what are, what's our activity. So if I'm going to travel to work on a bus, then I would think about, well, how might I possibly contract the infection through contact or droplet means? And so if I get on the bus and I grab the handrail or I shake the person's hand in the next seat next to me, that's one way of doing that. Or if I'm sitting beside somebody on the bus and they sneeze over me, then that's a possible risk factor. So it's about how we, behave, we modify our behaviours to lower that risk. To, to, to modify the behaviour for um, transmission, for contact, we'd use an alcohol-based hand rub frequently. For droplet transmission, we would think about how we might social distance from people who present with unwell symptoms. So these are the kinds of basic measures that we can adopt to lower our risk throughout our daily lives. You've given us an indication about the incubation period and the contagion period within a person. But if someone sneezes and droplets are on a surface, how long do we know how do we know how long it takes? <laughs> yes, I've been asked this question a bit lately. Um, look, it's very early on to, to know this with any sense of definitive um, science. It's week twelve or thirteen in the outbreak, but we know that a few things: coronaviruses, which is what this is, are not particularly hardy viruses. In other words, they don't survive in the environment for weeks, months, or years like some other pathogens do. They are relatively easily destroyed or made unviable by using really basic cleaning mechanisms with commercially available disinfectants, and they often don't survive or become, they, they become unviable um, through dehydration on the surface. So it's not like we expect that this will hang around on a surface for weeks on end. And I, I think it's really important to appreciate that um, we don't have sustained community transmission at the moment. So your risk of contracting it as you're moving about the city in your daily life at the moment is really quite low. 
if you are particularly concerned, grab one of these, stick it in your pocket, and you know, once you get off public transport, then use it. Just while you're on public transport, be mindful of how often perhaps you touch your face. So you can't be exposed to the virus just by simply touching a surface. It's not going to go through your skin. You have to then take that to your mucous membrane, so your mouth, your nose, your eyes, and that's where the virus can enter. So again, if you're concerned about it, just have one of these in your pocket, wash your hands regularly, and as much as possible, just go about your daily life. I want to come back to that issue of um, anxiety around this with it in a minute. Um, some of the other questions are around, uh, you know, sort of digging into this um, tension between 80% of people are likely to get very mild symptoms and then there's a 20% and within that 20%, um, where are, where's the level of risk for people with underlying symptoms? Where does age come into play? What are some of the kind of factors? How, how bad does it get in that 20%? Sure. So the, the basis that we have, again, the majority of our data at the moment has come from People's Republic of China. So the World Health Organization investigation team that came out of China produced a report in which they identified that around 2.4% of the global population of cases at the moment is people under 19 years of age. So what this is indicating at the moment, and this seems to be replicated elsewhere in other countries, is that children, while they may be exposed, they're not getting sick, which is obviously a great thing because normally with respiratory viruses, we will see the very young and the very old because of compromised immune systems um, suffering a higher morbidity and mortality. That's not what we're seeing here. What we are seeing globally is that the people at highest risk are people who are over 60 years of age with pre-existing medical conditions. And I think that's a really good message for our university as well majority of us and our staff and our students are not in that high-risk category. Um, and obviously we have people in our community, our parents, our grandparents who are vulnerable and we need to look after them. And I think probably in the coming weeks with the government response, you'll see a lot more sort of focus of resources going on to trying to protect those of our community that are vulnerable, which is the people that are over 60 years of age. So this question of, there's two things I'm really keen to dig into here. This question of, um, of anxiety, like that sense of preparedness and, and how, do we, um, how do we also look after our mental wellbeing in this time of like uncertainty? Julie, can you give us some thoughts on that? Yeah, the, the first thing to acknowledge is that this is concerning and it is quite normal to feel a bit anxious about it um, if indeed we end up with um, widespread transmission here. It, it won't be particularly pleasant. Um, and I acknowledge that it's also quite normal to feel a little bit of anxiety about um, uh, situations like this. Uh, I think that acknowledgement is very important for our health officials and our health communicators. Um, telling people not to panic is not particularly helpful because you, first of all, you introduce the idea of panic and suggest that there might be something to panic about. Um, and if we're preparing well, if we're um, thinking about imagining the different scenarios and how our family and our households and our workplaces can prepare, then we're doing things to try to minimise the risks for ourselves and the people around us. Uh, the second thing I, th I thought from the World Health Organisation, they actually have a really useful fact sheet around dealing with anxiety around this. Um, is to sometimes limit your um, use of social media. 
<laughs> give yourself a bit of a break. We're getting uh, saturation news and social media coverage from this at the moment. Um, and we're being treated to fairly um, dramatic images. At the same time as being told not to panic, we're seeing people in um, big suits and um, we're seeing uh, people in China under uh, being forcibly quarantined and some fairly distressing images. So uh, I think um, you know, to some degree, if you're finding that overwhelming, give yourself a little bit of a break and some space and just go to a, a re reliable source of solid information like the um, Federal Health Department or the New South Wales Health COVID-19 information site. They're actually quite good if you go digging around and look at what's there. And that leads to the other point, which is being informed with the facts. Now, the facts aren't, as you can see, they're not immutable right now. They're, they're changing because knowledge is emerging around this. So accepting that you're going to hear things that seem inconsistent over time and between people, that's normal when um, the information is still emerging and we're still getting a handle on this. Um, use practices that are helpful to you if you are affected by the anxiety around this. Use things that are already helpful to you in um, managing that anxiety, whether it be meditation or exercise or switching off social media or whatever that is. Um, and look after each other and pay particular attention to people uh, who uh, suffer from um, uh, challenges with their mental health, uh, people who might already have um, psychosis, for example, or paranoia. This might feed into that and might be much more challenging. People who ha um, have a lot of anxiety already, this might be quite challenging for them. So making sure that we as a society and our healthcare system continues to meet the needs of those people is really important. And again, there's some great fact sheets on this from WHO, really nice one pager. Print it up, put it in your workplace, um, and we need to look after each other psychosocially with this um, disease. So I think Julie's raised the, the point about um, accurate information. And I just wanted to remind people that uh, we are seeing cases of influenza in Australia at the moment. We're about to head into the flu season. At the moment of the patients that we test with symptoms, by far and away the majority are due to viruses other than COVID. Uh, so it's just important to remember that. And if people are diagnosed with influenza, there is a drug called Tamiflu, which can be effective if treatment is given early, but it's not effective against COVID. Going back to scenario planning, there's, I guess there's, there's a, a few levels to that. There's the in society and, and um, the sort of the state and national level of society and of um, scenario planning. There's the personal, how do you prepare at home um, or how do you prepare in, in, for yourself? Um, and then we'll come to the university scenario planning as well. Can I throw open the, some, some insights from your from this amazing panel um, of experts about what are some of the scenarios that we might be seeing unfold here in New South Wales and Australia in the coming you know, period of time? And what are those windows? I, I guess I've kind of got some responsibility for this because I helped develop some of the plans. So um, in the event that we start to see more community transmission, I think it's important to appreciate. So all of our pandemic planning, um, Australia's been preparing for something like this for more than 20 years now. 
Okay, so there's people in the Federal Department of Health, Prime Minister and Cabinet and other federal departments, as well as our state and territories. This has been their job to prepare for this sort of eventuality. So um, we're not in the dark about this. Um, our worst case scenario was always planning for a repeat of the Spanish influenza um, pandemic of 1918, which has a similar sort of fatality rate at the moment, or around the sort of 2.5%. Um, so in that respect, what we're sort of seeing is a rollout of our nation's pandemic plans. I think there's a couple of key principles here to keep in mind, in the back of your mind, is that the measures are always targeted to be proportionate. So as we see things continue to evolve, um, evolve then we will start to see further potential escalation of measures designed to limit transmission. So there may be, for instance, further down the track, further school closures and childcare centres. Um, now, put that in context, we're not particularly concerned about young kids um, dying as a result of their exposure based on what we know about this virus at the moment. But um, kids, as any parent knows, have appalling hygiene practices. If you've ever had your child in, in a childcare centre, you know to expect to be sick for the next 12 months on a rolling basis. So um, for that reason, it's likely that we may see sort of further school closures and childcare centre closures because they can serve as vectors or opportunities to spread the virus to a household. Um, as things further progress in the event they do, and again, there's no guarantee that that will occur, um, then we may see sort of further escalation of those measures such as cancellation of mass gatherings, um, you'll be discouraged from going to church on Sundays or any other sort of religious gatherings, um, cancellation of conferences, all of those types of activities. Obviously, some countries have already started putting these measures in place. Um, some conferences have already started cancelling in anticipation of further cases. Um, each sort of jurisdiction um, in Australia will basically have to make that judgment call themselves and it will be based um, very closely in consultation with the federal government as well. So a couple of questions. Um, there's a question here about do we think that, the, um, that we have enough COVID-19 situations um, that there's going to be a big kind of outbreak in the next couple of weeks in Australia? Is that sort of where the numbers are tracking? I think the short answer to that, if I can be bold, is the answer would be probably no. We don't expect a massive change in the numbers of cases in the next week or two. But we do expect that there'll be more cases. As Adam has said, and Tanya and others, we don't know what the size of that will be, but we expect there to be smaller cases that will continue for some weeks, perhaps months ahead. And I think what's important is that we think to that we think about how we begin to address that for us now at a family and at a household level, having conversations about what do we do if mum in the household becomes unwell or dad becomes unwell or grandma or the neighbour becomes unwell? How do we organise our lives around those kinds of events to plan about what, what we'll do in the next week, two weeks, month or so? Those discussions really then help to figure out how proportionate our responses might be as individuals to respond to those demands of, of us on any given day. You would have also, some of you would have heard more locally, some organisations have begun to Contain, to introduce containment measures that Adam has talked about. So, for example, some local health districts have ceased having large gatherings, um, and there are for a range of reasons, but these are not measures that are ordinarily um, made across the board, across large populations. That's a fairly strong response, which we are nowhere near at this point, point in time. And 
as you've heard today, information changes fairly rapidly and we have to be measured in that approach. And uh, in, um, our health system, do we have the capacity to deal with the, in, with a, a big kind of spike in, de, you know, in demand in our hospital infrastructure? One of the advantages, if you like, of, of the containment strategy that we've adopted so far is that it's given us time to prepare the health systems in the expectation that we will have community spread. Uh, it's also meant that we're really dampening down spread and uh, as we, I think, have to anticipate that spread will occur into the community, uh, we will still have in place public health measures that help us to mitigate the spread of the infection. So what we're really trying to do is dampen down the response instead of having a really high peak where the whole health system crashes and we can't really manage anything, to smooth that out somewhat with our subsequent public health procedures. And in listening to the Chief Medical Officer, I think last night, he was challenged with the question, when will the outbreak peak? Obviously, we don't know. It's all based on modelling. But he was bold enough to suggest possibly around the middle of the year. Professor Camrad Scott. <laughs> How long's a piece of string <laughs> at the moment? I mean, just going back to the international context to follow on from that, I think one of the challenges that the World Health Organization is particularly mindful of, if you look at any sort of, there's several maps out there at the moment, including WHO, sort of tracking live reporting of cases. Um, I suggest if you're looking at them, look at them once a day and that's it, um, and then turn them off. But um, one of the big issues um, which you'll notice immediately in looking at a map is that there's only around 10 cases that have been identified on the entire continent of Africa. Um, and that's obviously a concern because they don't really have the laboratory capacity in many countries there um, to test for the virus. The African CDC has now, with support from uh, sponsors, has now um, created uh, 26 different laboratory, deployable laboratories um, throughout, that will be deployed throughout Africa to start testing for it. But that's, it's, it's some of the concern in terms of um, being able to see, help those countries contain the outbreak. We've got a pretty good healthcare system. In fact, it's one of the best in the world in Australia. So, um, you know, our chances of, of weathering this is actually really, really high and very good um, compared to some of the other countries in the world. And so that's the concern that this virus will become what's described as endemic, that it just then is able to continue to circulate. The WHO has really been emphasising we're still in that containment phase. The window is narrowing, but if countries do put in place measures um, to try and identify those clusters of cases and contain them rapidly, this conceivably can still be potentially put back in the box. So it's not zombie apocalypse. And there are a couple of important extensions to that. I mean, as we've heard, we expect this to perhaps peak in the middle of the year. It's going to be around for a little while, but there, we all have other, um, other aspects to, it, to, to our lives. I mean, every day people have heart attacks and shortness of breath and a whole range of other conditions. And we've learnt the lessons of swine flu and H1N1 from some years ago. We, we had people who weren't able to, to access health care for other conditions, which were in fact much more serious on that, that moment because systems were overwhelmed with that particular influenza at that time. So as Tanya has said, um, we, our response is to attempt to dampen down the, 
the, um, the activity and to contain the infection so that we can maintain that focus as well as everything else on any given day, which is as important. I mean, heart attacks don't stop and car accidents don't stop and we have to attend to those people in the same kinds of way on any given point in time. To this question of, of, of trying to even out the, the spread and, and, and therefore also minimising risk, um, there's a couple of questions about people sort of profiles and risk, like are you more at risk if you're pregnant or if you have diabetes or asthma, if you're not in the over 60 category? Um, any insights on that? Uh, I think the issue with pregnancy is that any condition that can cause a high fever uh, can potentially cause problems for the fetus. Uh, there is no evidence uh, available to date that this virus can cause what's called congenital abnormalities, that is to say that it can actually affect the fetal growth and cause um, defects to be present at birth, as some other viruses can. So, and there, to date, to my knowledge, is very little published about pregnancy, but we haven't seen that group emerging as having a, a relatively increased proportion of infection, noting that the data we have are probably limited. Mm -hmm. so uh, as far as the underlying chronic diseases go, exclusive of uh, malignancy or immunosuppression, which for any viral disease will put people at risk, um, Well-controlled diabetes, for example, I'm not aware of data uh, supporting the fact that these people are at increased risk. If people have very severe chronic disease, um, for many of which they may be on monoclonal antibody or other sorts of treatment that might affect their immune system, then that's a slightly different story. Mm -hmm. oh, so the other thing, though, is important to think about is chronic uh, lung disease. Uh, because there are a few observations that have been made. For example, in smokers, there, I don't know how many smoke, maybe none of the university smokes anymore, <laughs> Vice Chancellor. Um, the, the number of receptors that, to which this virus can bind, seem, uh, can bind and therefore cause infection seems to be increased. So I think one category of patient that we will be concerned about are those that have chronic lung disease. Right. And or smokers. So for, for everybody, but particularly those groups, uh, personal reducing personal risk is key, which is we've, we've kind of touched on this a few times, but let's go back to that again just to be really um, explicit about it. How do we... Um, we've gone through hand hygiene. Uh, what are some other measures we can take? Handshaking, proximity, what are, what are some other things we can do to kind of keep the risk down to help keep that, that curve as flat as possible, um, but while maintaining our daily lives? Well, it goes back to, as I said, about thinking about how this disease is spread and good health and, and, and well-being, um, getting lots of rest and all those usual practices which most of us practice all the time. Um, hand hygiene is very important. Um, social distancing from those who have obvious unwell symptoms, thinking about, um, you know, your own health and well-being and taking some proactive measures. So. We're about to, as Tanya has said, embark onto flu season for the year. We know from experience that when individuals have more than one condition, um, it makes their outcomes much, much worse. So avoiding the influence of having the vaccination is a really nice way to 
prevent any um, subsequent um, what we call comorbidities if you happen to then subsequently develop COVID-19 in that kind of way. So I know it sounds fairly um, uh, unexciting, but it really is back to basics. And there's, there's no magic pill, there's no magic mask, there's no magic um, measure of distance. It combines a whole range of behaviours that in their totality afford to keep us safe. Yeah, um, I think it's also important for us to think about the um, minimising the social risks of this. And one of the, the big impacts so far has been the uh, unfortunate um, racism that has that has been experienced by some people in the particularly the early phases of this, um, particularly for Chinese businesses, for example. Uh, and so all of us have a role to play in speaking out a, a, about that um, so that those kinds of impacts are uh, reduced as much as possible. Unfortunately, uh, research that we've done looking at what makes people in Australia appreciate vaccination, for example, they, they um, see vaccination as a way to prevent infectious diseases coming from outside, from other countries, as if we don't have any diseases that are endemic here. So there's a very, very much a tendency for people to um, use infectious diseases as a way to delineate between self and other and express some of those prejudices and those um, biased ways of thinking. Uh, so I think what the university has done in being very proactive around this has been excellent, uh, but we need to be con continue to be vigilant. You've got rid of it, like, can you get it again? What, what does that kind of, going back to that question about um, yeah, stigma? The answer is, uh, not in, in a sense, <laughs> in that really the only uh, definitive way of, of defining if someone has a reinfection is by looking at the entire genome of the virus. And at the moment, we're relatively early in the epidemic and the virus has not evolved to any great degree genetically so that we can't really use that as a mechanism. We do know that some patients seem to be to test positive and then may test negative and become positive again. But there are a variety of explanations for that. One of them is that if you're testing the nose and throat and the patient develops pneumonia uh, and lose their upper respiratory symptoms, then it's the lower part of the respiratory tract that where you might in fact find the virus. So in other words, it appears to have disappeared but in fact, it hasn't actually disappeared from the respiratory tract. And we've seen uh, a couple of patients uh, with instances of that. Uh, so I don't think we can definitively answer that question, uh, but in the cases we see that tend to become positive again relatively quickly, it's by far and away more likely that it's not a reinfection. The other issue to comment on really is that with other coronaviruses, immunity does seem to develop after an initial infection. And although we don't have the information about this new virus, that would be our expectation. We're just about to wrap, but I just wanted to ask, is there anything else um, that you feel if you had, you know, you've got this uh, audience of um, 
of peers. attentive peers, uh, advocates in the community, in, in, you know, individuals in society um, who are also, uh, you know, have students in their um, care, for one of a um, better expression. Um, what's an overarching idea that we all need to keep in mind or take away? I'm not going to say don't panic, but keep calm. <laughs> and carry on. <laughs> and carry on, yeah. Um, this... Again, like we've got systems in place that we've been preparing for an eventuality like this for a number of years. Um, we've had a couple of dry runs. Um, the SARS outbreak in 2003, we were preparing for the cases. We never received any SARS cases. We've had um, 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic where we did have cases. Um, we've obviously continued to see events like the MERS outbreak in South Korea and how they managed it. Um, so. All of those lessons have been incorporated into our plans. Um, we have continued to revise and update them. And um, this is probably one of the few times, I know there's a lot of cynicism in the community about trusting governments. Um, can I just say, this is probably one of the few times where you really can, um, because it's in the government's interest to limit this and to get everyone back to work and normal society functioning as soon as possible. And there's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of work behind the scenes to make that happen. So um, listen to trusted authorities, um, maybe avoid some of the social media myths. Yeah. Yeah, I echo that. I've encountered the, the people who are providing the deep technical expertise to government. We have some great um, expertise uh, available to us. We're very fortunate, having just come back from Samoa um, in the aftermath of this, the measles outbreak. And uh, if you're finding that government uh, are wanting in some area or there are gaps in their communication, let them know because one of the areas that they could always strengthen is the two-way communication. Uh, so let them know and if you have any questions, come and ask us afterwards. I think also be cognizant of the impact you have on others so that if you do have a respiratory illness, it's desirable that you actually distance yourself from others as much as if they have a respiratory illness, you try to distance yourself from them. So coming to work in closed environments where you really have significant respiratory symptoms, think twice about them. And finally, in uncertain times, we often um, should just think about what we can do on any given day, on any given point in time, any given moment. And however small that uh, behaviour might seem, uh, it is nonetheless significant to you and to your family. So as we've said, think about scenarios, however likely or unlikely they may be. What might you do if this happened? And where might you go for help? Practice some of those information-seeking behaviours that we've spoken and heard about today and think about how you might need to change what you might do, which is new to you and what that might look like in moving forward. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas.